Okay, well, good evening, everybody, and a warm welcome to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. It's a very great pleasure for me this evening to introduce our speaker, who is Mike Beanie. Mike's the Regis Professor of Logic at the University of Aberdeen. He's Professor of the History of Analytic Philosophy at the Humboldt University in Berlin, and is also a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Um, Mike's worked mainly on the history of analytic philosophy, but also worked on um, philosophical methodology and the roles of analysis and creativity in philosophy. He's worked a lot on philosophical translation and also on Chinese philosophy. Um, a couple of recent books include the Oxford Handbook of the History of Analytic Philosophy and Analytic Philosophy, A Very Short Introduction. And as you'll see from the beautiful first slide, which you should be able to see on your screens, his talk this evening is called in, uh, Swimming Happily in Chinese Logic. So without further ado, over to you, Mike. Okay, so thanks, Bill, for the introduction. How do you know so much about me? You're not me. <laughs> it, it's good to, good to see you, even though, as I said, it's, it's uh, sad we can't be in person in London by the River Thames, but hopefully um, soon. So hello, everyone else. I prepared PowerPoint slides for those who like something to read rather than watching me, which I hope is most of you. Um, but I hope that my talk will also be reasonably accessible, even if you haven't read the paper and just want to listen as you're doing something else, whether it's watching footballers roaming around happily on a football pitch or whatever. Anyway, before we begin, um, let me just say happy birthday to John Paul Sarch, whose 116th birthday it is today. So there's an appropriate picture of him on the title slide of Sarch roaming with uh, Simone de Beauvoir in Beijing, as it happens, I think in uh, 1955. Okay, so, oops, I just need to click. So uh, let me, as I do in the paper, dive straight in with a story which I call the Chinese logic dialogue. Joanne and Hugh were discussing a passage from an ancient Chinese philosophical text. Joanne said, look at the dialogue scripted here. This is cleverly argued. Hugh said, you're not a Chinese logician. How do you know it's cleverly argued? Joanne said, you're not me. How do you know that I don't know it's cleverly argued? Hugh said, I'm not you, so certainly don't know you. You're certainly not a logician. So the case is complete for your not knowing it's cleverly argued. Joanne said, let's go back to the beginning. You said, how do you know it's cleverly argued? In asking me which you already knew I knew it. I know it from using our shared reason. Now this transforms a famous story in the Zhuangzi the happy fish dialogue, which we'll turn to shortly. The Zhuangzi is the richest and most intellectually challenging of all the texts of ancient Chinese philosophy, and it's full of stories which have been interpreted in a wide variety of ways over the subsequent two millennia. It is one of the founding texts of Taoism, but it is also central to the entire landscape of ancient Chinese thought. In this talk, I want to explore some of the logical features of this landscape by focusing on the happy fish dialogue and addressing what we can call the problem of Chinese logic. So here's the structure of the talk. I'll first say something about the problem of Chinese logic before introducing the Zhuangzi and the Happy Fish dialogue. And then I'll elucidate the key concepts in the dialogue and discuss selected interpretations of it. 
section five, and then I'll conclude by returning to the Chinese project dialogue, which frames my analysis of the Happy Fish Dialogue and drawing out its hermeneutic um, implications. Okay, so the problem of Chinese logic. So the, the key question here that I'm addressing is, are there distinctive forms of argumentation and analysis in ancient Chinese thinking and or distinctive logical conceptions and theories, or can Chinese reasoning be analyzed and explained by modern forms of logic? Now, the main candidate here is Moist logic. And among other things, Moist logic is concerned with the use and legitimacy of analogical and parallel reasoning, though um, importantly, without actually offering any systematic theory of validity. We'll see that shortly. And I'm partly um, interested in this because of the hermeneutic implications uh, of what does this, what implications does this have for how we interpret historical texts, and in particular, what forms of logic should be used in interpreting Chinese philosophy. And basically the talk will be taking as our case study, the Happy Fish Dialogue, which enables us to explore these topics. Okay, so a few words then about Moism. So one could uh, characterize most logic as concerned with one-step inferences involving the compounding of names, inferences of the form A is B, so FA is FB. Now, some of these inferences are good, according to the most, and, and, and some are bad. So good ones include this white horse is horse, so riding a white horse is riding horse, and some are bad. Robbers are people, so hating robbers is hating people. So to give just one illustration, the Moists held both that robbers are people and that killing people is wrong. But they also wanted to allow that killing robbers is right in certain circumstances. This might strike us as inconsistent, but on their view, the inference from robbers are people to killing robbers is killing people is analogous to the bad inference from robbers are people to caring about robbers is caring about people. Of course, one way to claim that killing robbers is wrong, but that killing robbers, uh, killing people is wrong, but that killing robbers is not wrong, is to distinguish two kinds of killing, say murder and judicial execution. Murder is wrong, but not judicial execution. The relevant text makes clear what's meant by caring about people on the basis of which we can reconstruct why they thought that caring about people is a different kind of caring from caring about robbers. But the reason that is given for the supposed failure of the inference in the case of killing robbers is not the ambiguity of killing, even though that might be true, but simply the analogy to the failure of the inference in the case of caring about robbers. Okay, so that brings us on to discussing what's basically their account of analogical reasoning. So the fundamental role uh, of analogical reasoning in Chinese argumentation comes out most clearly in book 45 of the Moza, the Moza text, chapter book called uh, Lesser Selection, which elucidates the most conception of disputation at the end. And here's the key passage. I'll just read the, the first paragraph and, and summarize the, um, the, the, the second. So analogy um, B, P is mentioning other things and then using them to clarify it. Paralleling more is placing expressions side by side and jointly proceeding. Pulling UN is saying, you are so, how is it that I alone cannot be so? And pushing, tue, is on this basis that what they don't accept is the same as what they accept, proposing it. And then in the second um, paragraph here, they um, show that they recognize that there are problems with analogical reasoning and one has to be on, on the watch out. We'll come back to that shortly. Okay, so um, the notions of analogy, paralleling, pulling and pushing can be illustrated 
by returning to our example of killing robbers. The analogy between killing and caring about people is what the Moists appeal to in clarifying why killing robbers is not wrong. The inferences involved in this analogy are robbers are people, so killing robbers is killing people, and robbers are people, so caring about robbers is caring about people. So here there's both a parallel between robbers are people and effing robbers is effing people, and a parallel between the two inferences. Placing them side by side is what constitutes or enables proceeding in our disputation. Pulling is the literal translation of yue, which has also been translated as adducing. So here can we, we can imagine someone disagreeing with the Moists about the analogy between the two inferences. The Moists challenge them by asking, if you hold that the second inference concerning caring about robbers is bad, then how is it that we cannot hold that the first inference concerning killing robbers is bad too? The question is intended to pull their opponents towards their own point of view. Okay. Pushing is the literal translation of tway, also translated as inferring. Here we can imagine the Moists arguing with their opponent as follows, making explicit uh, what was the conversation implied in their attempt at pulling. You hold that the second inference is bad, but the first inference is analogous, so you should accept that the first inference is bad. The aim here is to push them into accepting what they do, what they do not currently accept. In other words, to infer something from what they do believe. As I said, the second paragraph shows that the most recognize the dangers of analogical reasoning. Some analogies are convincing, some are not, so we must always be on the lookout. And of all the various philosophical traditions in ancient China, the most were the most reflective about this. Okay, so just a couple of words about the School of Names, another philosophical tradition, Mingjia. Um, two of his most important representatives, famous for their paradoxes, is Hui Shi, who stated 10 theses which raise problems of relativity perspective, and Gong Song Long, very famous for his paradox, White Horse is Not Horse, by Mao Feima. Now, paradoxes, of course, have always been a stimulus to philosophical thinking, and they especially motivated the work of both the later Moists and Zhuangzi. But here's the key point for our present purposes, Kui Shi was also Zhuangzi's main sparring partner, and he's actually taken in the text of the Zhuangzi as a representative of what we might call the logician. So that's obviously relevant to the um, dialogue, as we'll see. Okay, so this um, uh, outline of most logic already suggests an answer to the problem of Chinese logic. Analogical reasoning, in which one-step inferences involving the compounding of names play an important role, is what is characteristic of Chinese argumentation. And reflection on this lay at the heart of the work of the later Moists. So there's indeed something distinctive about Chinese logic. On the other hand, the use of analogies throughout ancient Chinese philosophy and the ways in which they were accepted or rejected involve forms of analysis and reasoning that were not systematically codified. So this is where an understanding of modern logic um, can help to make explicit what was implicit. So uh, we'll basically take the example of the happy fish dialogue to um, uh, fill out this answer. Okay, so uh, section three, Zhuangzi and the happy fish dialogue. So Zhuangzi is named after Zhuangzhou, who flourished around in the, in the later half of the fourth century BC. Zhuangzi himself has traditionally been taken as the author of some of the chapters, though his precise contribution is, is uncertain. But whoever the author 
or, or authors may have been. However, there's a consistency of view and style across many of the chapters that make it appropriate to treat them as a unit and to use the name Zhuangzi as a shorthand way of referring to their authors. Okay, so section 3.1 then, a few words about perspectivism um, in, in the Zhuangzi. So perspectivist, relativist, and skeptical themes pervade the Zhuangzi. Perspectivism can be characterized minimally as the view that all knowledge is perspectival, and Zhuangzi was broadly a perspectivist in this sense. The key question is whether he held that all perspectives are equally valid, which might be taken to imply relativism and the repudiation of objective knowledge. My own view is that he refrained from drawing relativist conclusions, although relativist and skeptical arguments are deployed throughout his thinking to combat dogmatism. Arguably, his epistemological perspectivism is embedded in a broader metaphysical conception of a oneness that underlies and unites the various perspectives, on the basis of which Jones urges us to recognize how perspectives connect with one another, thereby undermining dogmatism. Given the centrality of this idea, I shall describe his core philosophical idea as connective perspectivism. The key passage in this respect occurs in chapter two of the um, Zhuangzi, in which Zhuangzi elaborates on his conception of a Tao. Often translated as way or path, it can be understood here as any kind of linguistic or ethical practice. Such Tao's, he writes, are formed by walking them. And there's nothing that cannot be deemed right or acceptable from some perspective. But he nevertheless stresses that for any given perspectives, there's a Tao that connects them into one. This is the heart of Zhuangzi's Taoism. He's a pluralist about Taoists, but he renounces the radical relativism that this might seem to imply by emphasizing how any one perspective, or rather the perspective one inevitably occupies at any one time, opens out into another. It's fine to occupy that perspective for appropriate purposes on Zhuangzi's view but the fear of other perhaps alien perspectives is removed and dogmatism repudiated by appreciating how they interconnect. Okay, so a few words to introduce the Happy Fish Dialogue. This is one of the most famous stories in Chinese literature. It concludes chapter 17 of the Zhuangzi, which is entitled Autumn Waters. Perspectivism is the central theme of this chapter as well, developed through a series of scenes that might indeed be interpreted as different perspectives opening up into one another, the realization of which is what the text itself performs. The final scene in which Zhuangzi and Huisha uh, engage in an argument over whether the fish they see are happy, that can then be taken as encapsulating and expressing Zhuangzi's connective perspectivism. The dialogue, though, has generated a range of different interpretations, as we'll see. Indeed, the dialogue can itself be read as raising the problems of interpretation and understanding that bedevil many areas of philosophy. The problem of other minds, of interspecies understanding, of multicultural dialogue, of interpreting historical texts, of comparative philosophy, and so on. To adapt a remark of Wittgenstein's, what we have here is a whole cloud of philosophy condensed into a drop of dialogue. It also raises the problem of Chinese logic and the interpretations I discuss have been selected to focus on this problem. Okay, so here's the text itself in both Chinese characters and, and pinyin to help us read it with an English translation. Um, I've numbered the lines in accord with the, the dialogue. Okay, so Zhuangzi and Huizhe were roaming on the bridge over the river Hao. Zhuangzi said, look at the darting fish coming out to roam around. This is fish happiness. Huizhe said, you're not a fish. How do you know fish is happiness? 
Johnson said, you're not me. How do you know that I don't know Fisher's happiness? Fraser said, I'm not you, so certainly don't know you. You're certainly not a fish. So the case is complete for your not knowing Fisher's happiness. Johnson said, let's go back to the beginning. You said, how do you know Fisher's happiness? In asking you which, you already knew I knew it. I know it from here on the River Hat. And I sh should have mentioned that I color-coded the key terms, which I'll uh, go on to discuss in a, in a second. Okay, that's the text. Okay, so the section four, uh, clarifying some of the key concepts in this uh, dialogue. So I've I identified six here. So I'll say something very briefly about each of them. Yo, you, le, an, je, and bun. So first of all, yo. So yo is one of the most important terms in the genre, being used some 95 times. It has the sense of roam, ramble, stroll, wander at ease, and is used most notably in the title of the very first chapter, Xiao Yao Yo, which can be translated as freely and widely roaming. The basic idea of yo is of, of moving around that's unconstrained by any specific goal or perspective. The term is used here for both the roaming of Zhuangzi and Huizi and the swimming of the fish, the presumably intended parallel indicating some kind of shared experience, supporting or at least anticipating Zhuangzi's argument. Okay, so you. You is the standard term for fish. Fish are mentioned around 30 times in the Zhuangzi, more than any other kind of non-human living being. Of particular significance is the fact that fish live in water. Water is a common metaphor in Chinese literature for the Tao. As Franklin Perkins has argued, there are three roles that fish play in Zhuangzi. First, they draw attention to the limitations of any mode or a being or perspective. Fish are clearly constrained by living in water. Secondly, they illustrate what it is to be at home in an environment or to inhabit a perspective. Fish have their own form of life, which is fine for them, though obviously unsuitable for us as humans. Thirdly, they highlight the problem of understanding across perspectives. It seems scarcely credible that we could ever see things as a fish does or know what it's like to be a fish. It's this third role that's especially relevant here. Huizi represents the view that there's incommensurability, while Zhuangzi suggests that there's some kind of connection between us. So the, the third key term is le, which is be translated as happy, happiness, or joy. And here the key interpretive issue, I think, is, is it an inner state or an embodied activity? Here's the question, what is it like to be a happy fish or what is it to, for there to be fish, happy fish activity? So if the former then we might take Zhuangzi to be stressing the analogy between the happiness that he and Huizi are experiencing in their shared roaming. If the latter, then it makes more convincing Zhuangzi's answer, that is fish happiness, as he points to the fish that they both see swimming around below the bridge from where they're looking. But I don't think the answer is in fact necessarily incompatible. Okay. Fourth key term, ah, in interrogative. So this can mean how or whence. A natural translation of anger would be, how do you know? It has the same ambiguity in, as in Chinese. How do you know, as in how could you possibly know, versus how do you know, as in how did you come to know? With perhaps in Chinese, the former is its main sense, maybe as in English too. The first asks the justification that what you have is genuine knowledge. The second presupposes that you have knowledge and asks the clarification of how you acquired that knowledge. In particular, in its sense of whence, I from where, 
do you know? It requests specification of location. It's natural that Huizhe, as the logician, should ask for justification, but equally natural that Zhuangzi, as the Taoist, should be offering clarification of the relevant perspective. The interpretive issue concerns the use to which the ambiguity is put in the text. Is it just a playful pun exemplifying Zhuangzi's wit, or is there some more serious purpose? Does he realize that Huizhe has got the better of him and so quickly changes tack? Or has he somehow drawn Huizhe into contradicting himself and now shows him the way out of the fish bottle. Okay, sure. So this is clearly the central philosophical term in the dialogue. As a verb, it can mean know, understand, discern, be aware of, and as a noun, knowledge, wisdom, or consciousness. As in the case of happiness, what we arguably have here is less a mental state than an activity. In this case, the activity of using words correctly, fittingly attuned to the situation. To know what a fish is, for example, is to be able to say fish or not fish in the appropriate circumstances, a form of knowing how rather than knowing that, practical rather than theoretical knowledge. The opposition between Zhuangzi and Huizhe can then be seen as one between representatives of different conceptions of knowledge, an opposition that's taken center stage in recent debates in epistemology. Appreciation of Moist logic, however, suggests a further conception. Later most define knowing as connected, explained as being able to describe the features of something. But describe, to describe something as X is to say that it's like what is taken as our model or standard. So the Chinese is far for being X. So to know that something is X or to know how to name something X is to know it as X, as like our standard. Arguably then knowing as is the fundamental form of knowing if the Moists are right. And then finally, more briefly, Bun means root, origin, beginning or starting point. It's translated here as beginning as talk of going back to the beginning sounds most natural in English, but it's important to recognize that its primary sense is root or origin, or we might indeed call it root meaning. The Chinese character itself suggests the idea of a root. What Zhuangzi is arguably proposing to Huizhe is that they return not just to the starting point of their argument, but to the root experience from which the claimed knowing flows, an experience of seeing fish swimming around that the two of them shared in roaming together on the bridge. Okay, so I'll just have a quick glass of Dao. So section five, the, the longer section, um, <clears throat> logical analysis of the, of the Dao. So some introductory remarks first. So one interesting feature of accounts by Western philosophers of Chinese ideas and texts is the way in which debates between analytic and continental philosophy are played out. Ancient Chinese thought is often taken to be characterized by greater fluidity in its concepts and less rigor in its argumentation than is typically deemed acceptable by analytic philosophers. Continental philosophers have tended to see this as a virtue posing challenges to analytic philosophy. But more analytic approaches to Chinese philosophy also raises issues for analytic philosophy as there are disputes, of course, within analytic philosophy, just as there are within any philosophical tradition. Indeed, it's important to recognize that there are disputes within Chinese philosophy, as the Happy Fish Dialogue itself illustrates. Quetzer represents a more analytic strand in Chinese philosophy, with Zhuangzi's ideas partly formed in reaction to this. 
Doing what follows, I discuss two analytic interpretations that focus on the logic of the central argument between Johnson and Hueso, and end by outlining two other readings. But before doing so, I shall briefly survey some of the broadly continental ones. Okay, brief tour of these continental ones. <clears throat> of all the ancient Chinese philosophical texts, the Zhuangzi is by far the most playful in the stories that are told and in the dazzling inventiveness of the language used. It's unsurprising then that what I call playful interpretations of the Happy Fish dialogue are quite popular. One example is that offered by Hans Georg Müller, who makes a great deal of the play on the ambiguity and jerk, how do you know, and yo, Rome, as used for both fish and humans. The dialogue itself, he suggests, should primarily be seen as just an enjoyable illustration or parody of the intellectual ramblings of philosophers. Taoism has a religious as well as philosophical dimension, and there are mystical readings of the dialogue too. Eskianus Mugor, for example, has argued that Zhuangzi's spontaneous exclamation, that is the joy of fish, records a mystical experience of pure coming into being, reflecting his own realization of the joy of life that arises in roaming. Hans Peter Hoffmann, by contrast, has interpreted this exclamation as expressing delight in the joy of language offering what he himself calls a literary reading, emphasizing Zhuangzi's celebration of the richness and fluidity of language. A more substantial interpretation is provided by Roger Ames, which we can call contextualist, not just in providing context to the dialogue, but also in articulating a contextualist conception of knowledge. Knowing as Ames describes it is holistic, perspectival, collaborative and situated. Quote, for Zhuangzi, knowing rather than being a true idea in the mind of some isolated experiencer, is always proximate as the quality of a particular situated experience. The idea of knowing as a shared experience is also developed in the phenomenological interpretation elaborated by two Japanese scholars, Toshio Kuwako and Takahiro Nakajima. Experience, Nakajima argues, quote, must be open to what is not itself. And what Zhuangzi reminds Huizhou of at the end of their dialogue is their openness to one another in their roaming together, which reflects Zhuangzi's openness to the embodied happy experience of the fish. Now, all these interpretations enrich our understanding of the dialogue and its broader context, but they're all open to one major objection. They offer no analysis or evaluation of the argument between Zhuangzi and Huizhou. So let us now turn to the two analytic interpretations. Okay, so um, Hansen's analysis. Chad Hansen. The most detailed reconstruction of the argument in the Happy Fish Dialogue, drawing on the resources of modern analytic philosophy, has been offered by Chad Hansen. On his account, Zhuangzi and Huizhou agree in what he calls their perspectival relativism, their disagreement lying in how to formulate its implications. Quote, the issue is not simply does Zhuangzi know, but what is the appropriate standard of attributing knowledge? Their respective views and favored standards are not stated explicitly in the dialogue, however, so have to be teased out inferentially by attending to what is needed to make sense of the moves in the argument. Okay, so let me reconstruct his reconstruction as succinctly as I can to bring out the logic of the argument as he interprets it under his own four headings corresponding to lines two to five of the dialogue. Okay, so. Line two, in fact. From seeing the fish swimming around, Zhuangzi asserts, this is fish happiness. This could be interpreted in one of three ways. This is what it's like to be a happy fish. 
these fish are happy, this is happy fish activity. The first opens up Nagel-style skepticism, how do you know what it's like to be a happy fish? The second yields traditional other minds skepticism, how do you know that the fish are happy? And the third suggests a more direct report and makes John's later return to the root more plausible. Quasar, so how do you know? Third, third line, Quasar. In asking Zhuangzi how he knows fish is happiness, Quasar invokes the following conversational norm. In asserting something, one must be prepared to respond to a challenge of how do you know? I'm not too sure about So there's some interference. Quasar's challenge to Zhuangzi's assertion is made after asserting something himself, namely that Zhuangzi is not a fish. The implication is that there's a principle from which it then follows that Zhuangzi does not know fish's happiness. Let's formulate this principle in a schematic form. Okay. One must be X to know X as F. This schema can be interpreted in a number of ways, depending on what the X and F stand for. As far as the dialogue is concerned, the relevant partial instantiations formulated as two pairs are PN and BK interpreting the X, and PA and PC interpreting the F. So here they are, PN. One must be N to know N's F, where N names a particular individual. PK, one must be of kind K to know N's F, where N names any individual of kind K. And then PA, one must be X to know X's effective state. And PC, one must be X to know X's cognitive state. Now, all that's needed to derive Huesa's conclusion that Duangza does not know Fisher's happiness is PK and PA, which we can combine as PKA. One must be of kind K to know N's effective state, where N names any individual of kind K. With the kind K here being fish and the effective state being happiness, we then have the following specific instantiation. That's PFH. One must be a fish to know Fisher's happiness. Since Duangza is not a fish, it therefore follows by PFH that Zhuangzi cannot know Fisher's happiness. Now, in Zhuangzi's first response to Huizer's challenge, he does not answer directly by giving his grounds for claiming to know Fisher's happiness. He counterattacks by accepting both C in challenging Huizer's own assertion, as well as P, now crucial, interpreted as combining PN and PC, which can be formulated as follows. This is PNC. One must be N to know N's cognitive state, where N names a particular individual. Zhuangzi correctly asserts that Huizi is not Zhuangzi, in which case it follows by PNC that Huizi cannot know Zhuangzi's cognitive state. So Huizi cannot know that Zhuangzi doesn't know Fisher's happiness. The crucial move that Zhuangzi makes here is to interpret P in a stronger form than was needed by Huizi to derive his implied claim that Zhuangzi doesn't know fish happiness. This is the trap that Zhuangzi sets, which Huizi falls into. Final part of the analysis. Huizi accepts both Zhuangzi's correct assertion that Huizi is not Zhuangzi, as well as PNC, the stronger version of P. Indeed, given that he's already accepted PA, albeit it's combined with PK, we can see him as endorsing the even stronger principle that I formulated here as PNAC. One must be N to know N's state, whether effective or cognitive, where N names a particular individual. From this principle, it then follows that Huizer doesn't know any of Zhuangzi's states, whether effective or cognitive, that is, in short, that he simply doesn't know Zhuangzi. However, 
It's at this point that Huizhe oversteps, falling into Zhuangzi's trap. He thought he'd trap Zhuangzi by getting him to agree to the principal P and in an even stronger form that was needed. Happy with himself, he simply turns his own rhetorical question, you're not a fish, how do you know fish is happiness, into an enthematic argument. You are certainly not a fish, so the case for your not knowing fish is happiness is complete, with the principle that governs this argument now accepted by Zhuangzi. The problem is that the conclusion of this argument, that Zhuangzi does not know fish's happiness, as asserted by Huizhe, conflicts with Huizhe's assertion that he doesn't know Zhuangzi. If Huizhe is held to see the conversational norm that they have both also endorsed, then he has to show that he knows both that he doesn't know Zhuangzi and that Zhuangzi doesn't know fish's happiness, but the former rules out knowing the latter. Both assertions might be true, but Huizhe cannot claim to know both. His happiness evaporating, Huizhe is snared, snared by his own trap. So just a final clarification, what I've here formulated as PNAC is what Hansen himself calls the inner perspective principle, which he formulates uh, as follows. One can only know something from one's own first person subjective experience. Okay, okay so now just the evaluation then. Um, Having caught Huizhe in a trap, Zhuangzi then offers him a way out by going back to the beginning, according to Chad Hansen. There's no verbal trickery on Zhuangzi's part, only a helping hand. Huizhe's challenge of how do you know had been issued in the context of implicit acceptance of P understood in some form. But having led Huizhe into contradicting himself, the question can be asked again without inferentially assuming P. How does Zhuangzi know fish happiness? From here on the River Hao, where Huizhe is too, and hence in a position to know just what Zhuangzi knows. It was Huizhe's adherence to P that had blocked him from recognizing this. And once that obstacle is removed, the way is open for him to accept that Zhuangzi does indeed know fish happiness. Of course, Huizhe may still refuse the helping hand. The dialogue does not end. Of course, Zhuangzi, I now see you're absolutely right. You must know how happy I am. As Hansen points out, there are two other ways that Huizhe could escape from the trap. One is to accept only the weaker form of P, as represented by PK rather than PN. He can know Zhuangzi's states since he's human himself, but no human can know Fisher's states. The other way is to refrain from asserting that he knows that Zhuangzi does not know Fisher's happiness. He should remain agnostic. Hansen suggests that Huizhe errs in drawing absolutist conclusions from his relativism. Before we can assess this, however, we need to consider another logical analysis of the argument according to which Huizhe comes out better. Okay, so this is now Teng's analysis. So rather than analyzing the argument between Huizhe and Zhuangzi inferentially, as Hansen does, Norman Teng has suggested that it's best analyzed in Moist terms, drawing on the lesser selection. As we've seen, paralleling is defined as placing expressions side by side and jointly proceeding. Teng notes that there are two parallel patterns in the dialogue. P1, X is not Y, whence does X know the state Y is in? P2, X is not Y, so X does not know the state Y is in. P1 is used in Zhuangzi's first response to Huizhe's challenge in lines three and four of the dialogue. Huizhe, you're not a fish, whence do you know fish happiness? Zhuangzi, you're not me, whence do you know that I don't know fish happiness? Here we have paralleling together with adducing, pulling. 
if you can question how I know fish happiness, then I can question how you know that I don't know fish happiness, is what Zhuangzi is adducing in this case in throwing the challenge back at Huizhou. Now, P2 is used in Huizhou's response to this counter-challenge in line five of the dialogue. I am not you, so I don't know you. You're not a fish, so you don't know fish happiness. Here we have paralleling together with inferring, pushing. From Zhuangzi's counter-challenge, Huizhou is assuming that Zhuangzi would accept his first argument, I'm not you, so I don't know, know you, as well as the premise of the second argument, you're not a fish. And hence, given the parallel, would be led to infer what he'd earlier refused to accept, you don't know fish happiness. In Teng's account then, Zhuangzi's first response to Huizhou is a combined exercise of parallelizing and adducing rather than a contrived logical trap, as Teng puts it. And Huizhou's counter-response is a combined exercise of paralyzing and inferring rather than a mishandling of the dialectic. I've just used the word paralleling here rather than paralyzing, as Teng uses. Okay, so now, critique Hansen. With this in mind, Teng criticizes Hansen's account of the attribution to Huizhou of this inner perspective principle. As Teng notes, Huizhou's initial challenge only invokes the weaker species relativist principle. On the species relativist view, we cannot know the effective or cognitive states of members of other species, but we may know those of members of our own species, namely other humans. But what Zhuangzi tries to do, as we've seen, is get Huizhou to endorse the stronger principle, which we can now describe Zhuangzi as doing by paralleling. So consider the two key arguments. ZF, Zhuangzi is not a fish, so doesn't know fish happiness. Huizhou is not Zhuangzi, so doesn't know Zhuangzi's effective or cognitive states. Huizhou implicitly appeals to ZF in his initial challenge, while Zhuangzi implicitly appeals to HZ in his counter-challenge. But if Zhuangzi is right in paralleling and inferring from ZF to HZ, then Huizhou is no less right in paralleling and inferring back from HZ to ZF. Paralleling suggests that they're equivalent. But if this is so, then Zhuangzi should agree that he doesn't know fish happens. The problem, of course, is that Huizhou cannot consistently assert the conclusions in ZF and HZ. What this therefore shows is that the paralleling is faulty. And this is the final insight into the dialogue that Teng provides from the perspective of Moist logic. For the Moist were clear about the dangers of analogical reasoning. Zhuangzi and Huizhou were presumably aware of this too, and would not have been surprised that their paralleling leads to contradiction. This then motivates Zhuangzi's going back to the root which Teng accepts is a trick, but one which should now be seen as, quote, a device for reorienting oneself to a different viewpoint and asking oneself whether one knew it all along. Reading the dialogue from the perspective of most logic does indeed help make sense of the form that Zhuangzi's and Huizhou's reasoning takes. What is absent in both the dialogue and the lesser selection, however, is any diagnosis of where such paralleling goes wrong. Zhuangzi just returns to the root and limited resources are provided in most logic for diagnosis. The most simply identified supposedly good and bad cases of paralleling without any systematic account of what made good cases good and bad cases bad. Teng suggests that one be recognizing the paralleling in the dialogue, quote, Huisha's response is both elegant and powerful from an ancient Chinese dialectical viewpoint. But it is nevertheless flawed, and Teng's appeal to most logic is insufficient for analyzing the dialogue we need to recognize that the inner perspective principle is a stronger, more problematic principle than the species relativist principle, and that an option remains for Huizhou to return to species relativism. 
Okay, so now another interpretation. What the logical analysis just given, drawing on both modern and most logic thus opens up, is the space for a perspective that judges neither Joinza nor Hueza as the winner. Confirmation of this is provided by the species relativist interpretation that's recently been advanced by Leo Cantor, reference there. On her reading, Zhuangzi's and Huizhi's shared experience in roaming together and then looking at the fish from the same location shows the possibility of their knowing one another's states, but quote, we have no idea whether the happiness of fish would amount to anything outside our human purview, as she puts it. Once the stronger principle, PN, ACL IPP is shown to lead to contradiction, then the way is open for Huizhi to recognize with Zhuangzi that what knowledge he has of fish happiness comes only from our human perspective. It's not being in the relevant state that's important, but having a certain perspective. On both Hansen's and Cantor's interpretations then, Zhuangzi is seen as exposing an assumption that blocks Huizhi from appreciating what human knowledge of fish happiness is. But unlike Hansen, Cantor takes the dialogue as supporting species relativism, not a stronger individual relativism that just refrains from drawing absolutist claims. And this means that a better response to Zhuangzi's counter challenge was available to Huizhi than the one he actually made. He could have retreated to the species relativist principle inferentially invoked in his initial challenge and hence found common ground with Zhuangzi. Perhaps that was what was intended in Zhuangzi's talk of going back to the root Zhuangzi and Huizhi were indeed on common ground, looking at fish, and Huizhi did indeed know fish happiness in just the same way as Zhuangzi, whatever that knowledge exactly amounts to. Okay, so final section in this main section. My own view is that Zhuangzi is not himself a species relativist, at least about happy activity, even if Huizhi is. The whole setting of the dialogue suggests a parallel between the fish's happy activity and the happy roaming of Zhuangzi and Huizhi. And what Zhuangzi tries to do in the final line is to get Huizhi to recognize the analogy. He can know happy fish activity as like their own happy activity taken as the standard. Their shared perspective and the perspective of the fish open up to one another to the extent that there is this underlying similarity. Like all analogies, however, this may or may not be convincing. So perhaps in the end, the dialogue simply reflects the basic problem of Moe's logic. Okay, so concluding section. So let's go back to the beginning, the Chinese logic dialogue. Is the argument in the text that we've been considering, the happy fish dialogue, cleverly argued? This is the implication of both the logical analyses we considered, even if the argument needs considerable unpacking. But can it only really be judged so from the perspective of a Chinese logician, as Hugh claims? In other words, generalizing, can a text only be analyzed and the arguments evaluated using the logical resources that we can reasonably assume that the author of the text had at their disposal? Yes, seems to be Teng's answer in his dispute with Hansen, but this seems wrong. Knowing what kinds of reasoning were used at the time, both implicitly and explicitly, is important for understanding any text, but the core of philosophical understanding is evaluation of the arguments, and in this respect, neither Teng's nor the continental readings we consider do this. We need to draw on modern logic, which provides resources for dealing with a wide, wide range of our inferential practices. The most indeed recognize that analogical reasoning can lead us astray, but we need more than those logic to identify and diagnose what goes wrong. So is Joanne right? There are many ways of judging that something is cleverly argued. 
Continental readings we consider also make this judgment, but they do so by treating the text as a whole, by taking into account how the argument between Jonathan and Huesa is framed. In the Happy Fish dialogue, it's important to acknowledge the shared experience that Zhuangzi and Huesa are having. This comes out in the setting of the dialogue and its careful choice of words, which might be regarded as an implicit or silent argument, which the reader is meant to make explicit or voice for themselves. So too, in the Chinese logic dialogue, it's relevant that Joanne and Hugh are discussing the passage together. It's through their discussion assumed to involve conceptual and logical analysis, in other words, through the operation of their shared reason, that understanding of the relevant argument is achieved, just as the analysis of the Happy Fish dialogue offered in the present text is achieved through engagement with other interpreters and in imagined discussion with its anticipated readers. And this suggests a hermeneutic principle that's thoroughly Zhuangzian. Any interpreter must be as open, must be open to as many different readings as possible. Each reading offers something, and we must endeavor to see how they connect with one another. My analysis of the Happy Fish Dialogue has been framed by discussion of the problem of Chinese logic highlighted by the Chinese logic dialogue. The parallelism between the dialogues achieves two connected aims. The Happy Fish Dialogue offers an instructive case study by means of which to think through and resolve the problem of Chinese logic. The Chinese logic dialogue provides a setting that brings both most and modern logic into play in analyzing the argument between Zhuangzi and Huizhi and appreciating the contribution they jointly make in understanding the Happy Fish dialogue. Most and modern logic offer different perspectives on the text. They both help open up the argumentation, but each one also opens out into the other. Analogies encourage a form of perspectival thinking in which we roam between different perspectives in enriching our understanding of what it is that their perspectives on. We construct our world through analogies and the wider we roam in drawing them, the richer our thinking. At the core of most logic is the idea that something is deemed what it is in being like something else that is our standard in this respect. The root form of knowing for the Moists is knowing as knowing something as like something else. And this is reflected in Zhuangzi's view that knowing fish happiness is knowing it as like his and Huizhi's happiness. Analogy lies at the heart, the shin of Chinese thinking. And we can enrich our own thinking by exploring analogies and parallels with Chinese philosophy and using logic to unpack and evaluate them. Analogies, both explicit and implicit, saturate the text I've written, and I hope their felicity is manifest. How do you know this felicity? You know it from your happily swimming around in the text. And finally, no online talk would be complete without a poll. So imagine you or yo are roaming with Zhuangzi. What would you yo say about the fish? If they're happy and you know it, clap your hand. Thank you. <laughs>